Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Now Where Were We? Bob Cryer here. This is part two of our trip to the pub with Stephen Fry. So if you've not heard part one, you might want to listen to that first. But hey, do what you like. I'm not your mother. And as we dip back into the conversation, we're waxing lyrical about the genius that was Kenny Everett. Kenny was a, a, a delightful man, and I, I'm, I suppose there will be young people listening who, who probably don't really remember him. He and called it- me uh, honorary gay, friend of the family. I was delighted. And dear Terry and I had been married over 30 years by then, mm. and uh, Ev said to me one day, Ooh, bah, he said, you married over 30 years with four children. What a smokescreen. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going, he, he, he took me to heaven, the, the gay nightclub and disco, a huge, huge place, and absolutely not my thing at all. I mean, and, um, but he said, oh, you'll have fun. And uh, he, he was chatting away quite sweetly about his childhood in Liverpool when we were, were walking down the street. And then the moment he got through the door, he just, yes. he, he, like an extraordinary flower, he just blossomed and became this this figure who had to be the centre of attention. Yeah. And, and all the boys clustered round him and he was so happy. Yeah. But he wasn't really Kenny Everett. He was this invention, That's right. wasn't he? We filmed at Heaven once and we finished and then there was some music playing. <laughs> Ev and I were dancing together at heaven, and he said, oh, they'll all be saying, who's that old man with Everett? And I said, no, they won't. They'll be saying, who's that dwarf with Barry Cryer? <laughs> 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 oh, it was a joy working Well, because he defied him. labels, really, yes. because he wasn't a comedian in the conventional sense, a DJ, a brilliant DJ, a great sort of inventive, creative mind. Not an actor, not a singer, a, but he was yeah, all these other things. We had a charity sort of walk with people in wheelchairs and everything, Hatch End, where we live, and I was working with Ev, and bless him, I asked if he'd come and welcome them all back on the walk, and he said, oh, yes, yes. So he came to the pub and sat very quietly in a booth, chatting very quietly to me and the others. And then the, the gang arrived in the wheelchairs and everything, and he went out of the pub, hello, and became yeah. Kenny Everett. Yeah. that's Morris Cole. That's was yeah. his name, yes. The persona was Kenny Everett. You said that about Keith Moon, too, when you, you were writing oh, with Graham, Graham Chapman Keith. at the time. Yes, oh. it's Graham and Keith. And Keith would be mean to Graham sometimes. We went to, always went to the pub, the Angel. Dear Graham, you know, by midday he'd be saying, ooh, just the one, and... The, the day yeah. had gone, we'd be in the park. Well, he'd already met you at the door at 10 o'clock with a martini. Oh, yes. Yeah. Court of gin a day but we got a, get through. a lot done on that morning. We had to. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Keith Moon, no less, we went to, uh, there again, the persona. Keith Moon sitting chatting in the pub. And then he said to me, oh, I think they want a bit of mooning. He didn't mean no, dropping his trousers. No. And he got his lager and he went bang with his lager on the floor. And they didn't evict him. Somebody said, behave yourself, Keith. And that was that. And as we left the pub, he leaned over to the bar and said, how much do I owe you for the glass? I thought, boy, Keith Moon said that. That's the guy who supposedly drove, you know, drove cars into swimming pools and through television. Reed, I arrived to do a chat show, you know this, Bob, and uh, this man playing a drunk, that. And he wasn't. I mean, he was afterwards, yeah. bless him. But I was with him immediately before he wasn't drunk at all. Well, I heard that from people that worked with him. They said that he was, there was never a problem when he was working. Yeah. The problem was when he had three days off, didn't yeah. know what to do with himself. So sort of speaks to a mind that is restless and yeah. seeks maybe the you know. Is the, it a the, cry the for wrong. help if you do that on well, camera? part of it is also is that the rock stars of the 60s and 70s, like The Who and The Beatles more than any, <laughs> like the great comedians of, who, who made it in television in the 50s and 60s and 70s, 
had no generation to look back to for examples of the best way to use fame because the only famous people in the past had been sports people and Hollywood stars who were hidden yes. behind it. But suddenly there was this new thing and people didn't know how to handle it. All this money, all this recognition. Yes. And, you know, there wasn't the example of their generation dying of drug overdoses and overdoing it and committing suicide and doing all the, you know, having all the horrors that this this sudden attention can bring yeah, without yeah. preparation. Whereas now rock stars are often considered dull because they know what the pitfalls are because they they know about yeah, John yeah. Bonham and Keith Moon and uh, Janis Joplin. And that's true in comedy as well. I mean, if you look at that generation of uh, the Carry On films and, and of people like Tony Hancock, these are desperately miserable people. I mean, I know it's a cliche of the tears of the clown, but they just had no idea how to cope. Which is, I um, suppose, where that um, yeah. cliche comes from, the and tears not, of a clown. Yeah, and not, Kenneth Williams being Yes, and not helped good by the fact that uh, there was no support system at all. There was never, no one ever thought about, you know, their mental health or the, you know, of how, of how to cope with what was being thrown at them. And indeed, how to protect them from being paid so little in the case of the carry-on stars. <laughs> yeah. It was really treated like servants, you know. You should say the same jokes in a Different order. Yes, that's right. Hattie Jakes never opened the envelope, apparently, she said when the script arrived. She, said, she did the line, I she think. Knew. She knew. Same jokes in a different order. <laughs> oh, boy. No, the goon show was our Monty Python because yes. these men could have died. Peter Sellers was the youngest, wasn't he? He was yes. sort of Ensor entertaining, but Spike and Michael Benteen and Harry Seacombe. Did the real And they service. were injured, yeah. yes. yeah. And uh, they had no respect for authority by definition. Yeah. The government, the church, the BBC, and, oh, yeah. God, we used to gather around the radio. It was our show. We never heard a radio show like that. No, because they'd seen the officer class and their incompetence That's right. up close. I mean, some of them were fine, but, you know, a lot of them really were chinless wonders or yeah. buffoons of one kind or another. And, and they they fed into the what Spike's character, the characters he created yeah. for them, didn't they? I mean, the, the blood knocks and so on. Oh, amazing. So where do you think, if we're talking about these sort of totemic, these pillars mm. crumbling now and that we look in a landscape of, uh, of storytelling? And we've spoken to Miriam Margulies, who Is has now fine assumed... Indeed. Yeah. And she is telling stories from her life that she would say, I don't see them as funny, but they are honest yeah. and they are true. And that's why people laugh yeah. because she has a great fear of the contrived comedy. And I don't like comedy that's mm. meant to be funny. And, and very often the great storytellers are not necessarily the greatest performers and artists. They are figures who are somehow connected and very often have a, a genius for friendship. So the, the great Hollywood raconteur that I was lucky enough to meet was Roddy McDowell, right. who, who was not a huge star. He was being a child star. He was in Lassie with, yeah. uh, you know, and National Velvet with uh, Elizabeth Taylor. They were both sort of came over at the same age from Britain to the Hollywood. And then he was in Planet of the Apes. But he knew everybody and everybody adored him. And he told fantastic stories. And a British version of that perhaps was Victor Spinetti, right, who was yes. a magnificent storyteller and, you know, not the biggest star in the world, but he worked with the Beatles, of course, and he worked with all kinds of actors. And he was delicious in his storytelling, wasn't he? Yeah, he came to see me one night doing a show and then said afterwards, I resented paying for my ticket, he said. I'd heard all that in the pub from you, he said. <laughs> That's very good. He told, me, he told me an extraordinary story about John Gielgud and Binky Beaumont. I mean, you've just got to say Binky Beaumont and you're in another world, <laughs> aren't you? But Binky Beaumont used to run a company called HM Tennant, which owned and managed most of the West End theatres and really... Any play that was on in the in the West End was done by Binky. And he and John Gielgud had actually been lovers in the 30s, but they remained very good friends when they stopped being lovers. And Binky had a famous house, big country house, and, and he would have these weekends. And he called up John Johnny Gielgud one one midweek and said, Can you come this weekend? And and Gielgud said, Oh, yes, yes. And 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 he asked if he could bring his his friend. His, his, he had a boyfriend. And Binky said, Of course, you'd be so welcome, all of you. And they arrived quite early because Gielgud had brought a brace of pheasants that he wanted to take into the kitchen and, and talk about the plucking of them with the cook on whom he was in very good terms, which left this uh, boy 
who come with him, alone on standing there. And Binky bustled forward to be the good host and said, well, uh, Sebastian, it's lovely to meet you. Um, uh, Johnny says you're going to be an actor and, and that you're, you know, at, at drama school. That's terrific. Um, I don't know if you're interested in country houses. We've got a, an orangery with a pineapple pit, which is quite rare. Would you like to see that? And anyway, he carried on like this. And then eventually all these guests arrived, you know, Orson Welles and, and, and Noel Coward and Olivier and all these huge figures. And, um, and Binky managed to find Johnny Gilgood and said, Johnny, you're... <sighs> Your friend, you said he's going to be an actor. I, I don't think he's going to make it as an actor. Oh, why not? He's, what, he's, he's so awkward and, and peculiar. I mean, uh, I talked to him and offered to show him things and said, Sebastian, would you like to see this? And he just made little circles with the point of his toe on the carpet and blushed. And Tony said, oh, you didn't call him Sebastian, did you? And Binky said, well... I'm sure you told me that was his name. Oh, no, I didn't, did I? No, that's just the name we've given his cock. Isn't <laughs> 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 that fabulous? Follow that. That's marvellous. Well, no, actually, there's a, there's a Gore Vidal story, which I rather like, which is uh, I, I, I was lucky enough to know him really quite well towards the last 10 years of his life. And uh, he asked me, uh, not long before he died, how the Savoy Hotel was. And I said, well, actually, it's closed at the moment. They're refurbing it. It had been closed for a year. He said, oh, my favourite hotel. And I said, um, well, why is that? And he said, well, it's literary reasons. I said, oh, well, because F. Scott Fitzgerald used to stay there and, and Oscar Wilde and people like that. He said, no, no. And he told me the story. It was He was in his suite one day and he said, I let my fingers do the walking, which was a reference to the Yellow Pages, if you remember. And he, I said, I found an agency, the Janus Agency or whatever it was called, the Stallion Agency something. And I ordered a young man to come to my suite and... Uh, um, he arrived, and at some point I bade him turn over. And he said, no, I don't do that. And I said, oh, we'll, we'll discuss it later. He said, well, it'll be an extra 30 quid. He said, well, well just turn over. And anyway, the deed was done, and uh, he lay back and had his uh, necessary cigarette and then dressed and was ready to go, and I paid him his money. And he said, oi, where's the extra 30 quid? I said, I arranged the price with your people. I don't propose to deviate from him. And he started to cut up rough and threw an ashtray at my head. And, 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 and so I pressed the bell that is very handily there next to the bedhead in the Savoy. And the man in the, in the tailcoat and the striped trousers appeared at the door and bowed, Mr. Vidal, young sir. And I said, take this boy away. He's being a thoroughgoing nuisance. And the boy said, well, he did me up the arse and he's not paying the extra 30 quid. And the floor manager said, you come with me, young man. And so I thought no more of it. But then when I was checking out, I received my bill and I couldn't but notice that at the bottom of the front page, it said, Sundries, 30 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> that was the literary touch I admired. Sundries. Sundries. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Use the language. Marvellous. Gore was very good. Yeah. Uh, just another quick Gore one. was, uh, As you know, he had a, probably he had a very long-running feud with Norman Mailer. There the, the, yeah. the, the were two of the great novelists of the era. And in fact, Norman tried to punch him out on the Dick Cavett show once. And, and in his memoir, I think it was Palimpsest, one of his memoirs, he, he knew that Norman Mailer wouldn't buy the book, but he figured he'd go to a bookshop and look through it just to check. So in the index under Mailer, Norman. It just said, hi, Norman. <laughs> I met Norman Mailer. Did you? you now tell that yes, story. Uh, I wouldn't blame anybody for saying I don't believe this, but it's true. I came out of a lift, and if ever I bumped into anybody famous, I think, what doesn't threaten them? What's, what's innocuous? I just say hello. And I came out, I thought, it's Norman Mailer. And I said, hello. Hello. I'm Norman Mailer. Who are you? And I said, my name's Barry Cryer. Sit down, Barry, I'm bored. The guy he had to meet hadn't turned up. And I chatted away to Norman Mailer. 
End of that great story. <laughs> it's a good story. And it reminds me, while we're on the Savoy, I will tell you my story. It was, I, I, for very complicated reasons, there was a period where I lived at the Savoy Hotel in 1989 or 90, I think it was. I was sweet-sitting for an American friend who who had gone back to America for personal reasons and didn't want the suite emptied of his personal effects. And so he said, I could stay there for three months while he was away, and all I'd pay was the room service. So I had, you know, it was really good fun. And I, you get to know the staff. And Ernesto, I think his name was, who was one of the link men, the one in the tall hats, who, you know, doormen, we would call them probably, but they call them link men in the world of hotels. He said to me one day, he said, tell me, are you a fan of Frank Sinatra? And I said, yeah, you bet I am. I absolutely worship Frank Sinatra. He said, oh, he's, he's coming to stay. He'll be here next week for a few nights. I thought, wow, maybe I'll bump into him in the corridor or whatever. Anyway, I was filming. I was doing this film, Peter's Friends, at the time. And so it was really exciting to get the car picking me up from the Savoy and dropping me there. And I was able to really cock a snook at my friends in the movie who were thinking, what is he doing? <laughs> um, but... Um, Anyway, I, we had a late night's filming and I got back at about midnight or one o'clock and Ernesto was on the door. He said, you come with me. And he took me over, you know, the little steps that go down to the American bar, which there was a rope in front of them yeah. and, and it was closed. And he said, step over. And I went in and there, sitting at a table in a pool of light with a cigarette and a glass of whiskey, was Frank Sinatra. And, and Ernesto said, Mr. Sinatra, this is, uh, this is Mr. Stephen Fry, one of our promising young actor, actors and comedians, and uh, I thought you two would get on very well. So Sinatra said words I will never forget to me. He said, sit down, kid. He called me kid. I was so <laughs> thrilled. So I sat down and just sort of opened my mouth to speak, really, and we'd hardly had a conversation when about 30 friends of his came in, and that's why he was there. And I didn't exactly get pushed to one side, but they all knew him well, and they were all clapping him on the shoulder and, and, and things like that. But it was pretty good. Now, it has two parts, this story. So that was meeting him, which was thrilling, even if it was short. But then about three days later, I said to Ernesto, I said, is, is Frank still staying? He said, no, he left this morning, as a matter of fact. Quite, quite a funny story. He said, I said, what's that? He said, well, he said, he, as he was about to get in the car, he shook my hand and said, thank you, Ernesto. And he brought out this thick roll of money, these 10 and 20 pound notes, and he pressed it into my hand said, thanks for a great stay. I said, that is very kind of you, Mr. Sinatra. Thank you very much indeed. And he said, tell me, is that the biggest tip you've ever received? And I said, no, sir. As a matter of fact, it isn't. And he was most put out. He said, well, who gave you a bigger one? I said, you did, sir, last time you stayed. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They are very cunning, these people. And, of course, Frank Sinatra would go off feeling fabulous yeah. and next time would probably give him an oh, even yeah. bigger tip. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, you had that with Groucho Marx. Not that he called you kid, but you, uh, you got to meet the great man. Oh, wow. yes. Uh, Benny Hill had made it big in America and they were trying to launch uh, Des O'Connor. We were working on a series at L Street with uh, Des. And Marty Feldman was doing the Marty Feldman comedy machine at the same time. And the great Marx was going to appear on it. We couldn't believe it. And I'd become friends with uh, Brian, uh, American writer who was working on the show, became a director. Anyway, this guy <laughs> and I become friends. Even in those days, people were going about with bottles of water, but we were the two who were always in the bar. And I had... The book, The Groucho Letters, he'd written oh, to amazing yes. people like T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot, so. famously, yes. So I brought it in, and Brian, my American friend, said, what? I said, well, if there's a moment, the great man might sign the book for me. And then the next day, I'd still got the book with me. He said, look over there. And it was Larry Gelbart, the producer, sitting with Groucho Marx, uh, having lunch or whatever, and Groucho with a real moustache and a berry on. And... Uh, Give me your book. I said, he's having his lunch. And he went over to the table, and Groucho obviously looked back across at me, what was all this, right, and uh, signed the book. And Brian brought it back to me, and he said, what did he put? I didn't look. He said, he's just put uh, from Groucho. Don't you want it personalised? And he went back <gasps> a second time, and I'm now hiding behind a pillar. <laughs> and then 
He insulted him by saying, put Marx after Groucho. <laughs> oh, yeah. This story so gets... doesn't get confused Groucho so, Spencer. <laughs> I have got the evidence at home. Groucho Marx, by now, so really irritated and annoyed, initially put Marx in the wrong place. And I've got a book to Barry Marx. <laughs> <laughs> That was a bizarre day, that. fabulous. And then I, I met him in reception, and we were sitting there, and he says, where's my car? Don't I know I haven't got long for this world? <laughs> then he looked at me, and he said, do you swim? Out of the blue, do you swim? I said, yeah, yes, I, I like swimming. Yeah, I got a pool. I don't swim in it. Why not? They found a friend of mine floating in his. <laughs> Strange. And his daughter, Barbara, That's right. yeah. wanted to join a club which had an anti-Semitic reputation. And uh, she was turned down when she applied for membership of the club. So Groucho wrote to the club saying, for your information, my daughter is half Jewish. Can she go in the pool up to her waist? <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's an extraordinary thing, that idea that America, the land of the free, had such open racism yes. in, in things like that. It was not considered odd to have a club where you banned people of a certain ethnicity. And I, I am Jewish in, the, in as much as my mother's Jewish, so I have American cousins. And one of them was said to me very proudly, I, I've just joined the country club in Seattle. I'm the first Jew to join. I said, but why would you join a club that has <laughs> such a terrible history? And he said, well, it's great to be a member. And I said, well, I suppose oh, it's, that kind oh, of makes sense. Boy. But there was a, a Woody Allen sketch, one of his most famous monologues, which was about the Solomons and the Moose. Do you, do, do you remember yes. that? Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, and it, 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 it's a hunting thing, and Mr. Solomon gets shot instead of the Moose and is put onto the, the bonnet of the car and is tied there where you'd normally you'd have the head of a moose, there's Mr. Solomon's, and it's all very surreal and <laughs> yeah, weird. Yeah. But it ended with this thing about, and then it was taken and put onto the wall of the New York Athletic Club where it hangs to this day. But the joke's on the Solomon's because the New York Athletic Club is restricted. And I never knew what that meant, restricted, and it had right. to be explained to me. Restricted. It didn't allow Jews, so he got in. I mean, that is so extraordinary, oh. isn't it? Sick. And, of course, you talk about Larry Gelbart, and he was one of that extraordinary generation of, of Sid Caesar writers, wasn't That's he? That's right. Along with Mel Brooks and yes. Woody Allen. And yeah. the, Talking about the Frost Assembly of British yes. writers in the 60s, that was the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. Thing, it was a real it? nursery of Amazing extraordinary talent. That, yeah. Yeah. And Sid Caesar is probably the least remembered of all. Yeah. Yes. And it was yeah. his show. Was was the show. Yeah. yeah. I was, uh, yes, working on his show at Elstree, and... Uh, Dom de Louise, who oh, yes. I'd met and got to know, would work with everybody. A favourite of, of and Mel And we were Brooks's. just hanging about one afternoon, I think, in a dressing Well, whatever. Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft walked in. I couldn't believe it. And Dom, bless him, said to Mel Brooks, uh, Mel, this is Barry Cryer. Mel Brooks said, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that. That's, that's just a wonderful. nice... Never no, mind. Wonderful. Ross Noble did Young Frankenstein. Yes. Here, and Mel Brooks came over. I think it was a woman director, but she had she was shattered by Mel Brooks all the time at rehearsal, the great man. And yeah, everything. it was Susan Stroman, I think, directed That's, it. Yes, yeah. yes. And uh, Ross said, we opened in Newcastle, his hometown. And he said, uh, I'm sitting with the great Brooks in a corner. Mel Brooks has got a jockey cap on and dark glasses sitting in a corner with Ross Noble. And uh, he said, a man came in the restaurant, spotted me and went, Ross Noble! And Mel Brooks stood up and went, hi! <laughs> Betty did. He said such a touching thing to me. It was just a great human truth. It's not a joke, really. And yet somehow it was, he managed to make it funny in that wonderfully borscht belt sort of way because uh, his wife, his beloved wife, Anne Bancroft, died. Yes. died. Yeah. And, and uh, this was about five or six, ten years after she died, I I said something that referred to Anne Bancroft, and he said, do you want to know the kicker, the real killer? I said, well, he said, I miss my wife every day, but what really drives me crazy, her mother is still alive. <laughs> 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 and it was 
true. And Bancroft's mother lived to 105 or something, and it drove poor Mel crazy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And there's a place in uh, in Beverly Hills called Nate and Owls, a diner, a kind of Jewish delicatessen diner where Larry King has breakfast every morning. And, and if you go in there, you can see Larry King at one booth. And then you used to see Mel and, and Carl Reiner, the yeah. other, these extraordinary. And a guy called George Schlatter. Do you, do you remember him? Oh, God, Yeah, yes. he was a producer who was a friend of Sinatra's and produced Rowan and Martin's Laughing and shows like that. And they would all sit there recalling the old days. And I remember thinking it's probably what kept them so alive and so energized. Yeah. They just loved insulting each other, telling stories, just keeping the old juices flowing. Yes. And and maybe that's a part of stories too, is that it it keeps alive the people who would otherwise be dead because you tell stories about them and that keeps them alive. It also keeps the storyteller alive for just... You know, somehow it cheers you up and reminds you. Think about being you're... rude to old friends as well. Yeah, I'm never, <laughs> I'm never rude to people I don't like. I can't be bothered. No, that's but right. But you see people overhearing you in the pub or so one day. They think, what? Is the best compliment. Did you hear what he said? Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. You insult each other joyfully. It's great. Yes, yes it's like in in academia. It always amuses me that you know you'll be crossing a, an ancient cloister at some college and uh, you. You will hear people disagreeing about something like whether nor packet soup is better than Maggie. If you think that, yes, you are a, a moron, a blithering idiot. You have no right, not only to a position in academia, you have no right at all uh, to, to vote. Uh, you're absurdly stupid. And that's a minor disagreement. But if there is a serious disagreement, yes. it would be always, well... There are certain points on which we have to diverge, <laughs> you know, and you know that's when they hate each other. I did yeah. pantomime in Cambridge, and I was uh, sitting uh, in a restaurant, I think it was, and I actually overheard a woman say to the man she was with, has Simon noticed there isn't a main verb in that sentence? <laughs> <laughs> and we're back to Alan Bennett. Yes. Oh, yes. 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 <laughs> oh, do you know Alan Bennett swears that he saw in a newspaper, you know, in the back of newspapers, local newspapers in particular, they used to have the in memoriam section. Oh, yes. And, and there would be little verses and, and things in them. And he swears he saw this verse in the back of a newspaper in Leeds that's, that said, along the lanes of memory... The lights are never dim. So long as stars in heaven shine, we shall remember her. (laughs) (laughs) And as he said, he said they probably did it, you know, they did it for Uncle Stanley. And so when Auntie Vi died, they just, we'll do that verse again. (laughs) Uh, And send. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Alan Simpson at Dennis Rain Wilson's funeral. Oh. You know that one? No, go on. I'd well, love to know it. Be great. Dennis, Dennis, Maynard, D- D- Dennis right. produced the very first television I ever did. Oh, Is that yes. right? Yeah, yeah. And he did Hancock. Great and Hancock and Steptoe yeah. and uh, well, Death St. Paul's Dupart. Covent Garden, our church, as you well know. Yeah. And Dennis had gone, so we all, oh, boy, yes, good. And Big Alan stood up to speak, and we thought, this is going to be dry and funny. no. It's by the Reverend somebody, that corny old thing, I'm not gone, I'm just round the corner, laugh as you always did. Mm. So he did this, you could hear a pin drop. We thought, oh, respect. And he finished it and he turned to the coffin and he said, I told you, Dad, not a fucking laugh in it. <laughs> 
<laughs> God, he was and extraordinary. It, yeah, we, we, Hugh Laurie and, <laughs> and Emma Thompson and I and Tony Statry and, and the others, we'd, we'd done this review at university and it had won this new prize that was available at uh, Edinburgh called the, the Perrier Award. It was the first year yes, of it and yeah. we were very excited, but even more excited really when Dennis Main Wilson appeared at the stage door and said, I'm now for the BBC and I'll, um, I'd like very much to do your programme. Uh, on BBC Two, I can get a budget and we'll show it. And we were like, wow. And then I, I, I remember telling my father, and my father said, did you say Dennis Main Wilson? And I said, yes. He said, that name is in my head because any one of my generation, you listen to the radio yeah. and you heard, and the producer, Dennis Main Wilson. It's just, yes. He said, it must be the same man. And so, of course, I got to know him. And he was a bit of a drinker. <laughs> he always had a senior service cigarette, you know, untipped on the go, and a, and a whiskey in his hand, usually chasing a pint. And that would start at 10.30 when the bar opened. <laughs> so we soon discovered the only way to have a meeting with Dennis was to say, we'll be in the office at nine o'clock. Oh, come at 11. No, yeah. actually, unfortunately, it has to be nine, you know, because it's the only time he would be coherent. Well, we're only, a, we're only a stone's throw away from the Yorkshire Grey. Yes, the, the pub the, that he... Yeah. 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 Broadcasting house, it was known as YG1. <laughs> Where is so-and-so? They're in Studio YG1. There's a lovely guy called Kenny Earl. Uh, who'd been in a double act, Earl and Vaughan. He became an agent and equity and everything. And uh, dear Kenny went and they asked me to speak. And uh, the atmosphere was just delightful. His two daughters said, our memory of dad is laughing and everything. And it must have been back in my head somewhere unconsciously about Alan Simpson at Dennis Rain Wilson's mm -hmm. funeral because Kenny was there in the coffin and I stood up to speak. And I spoke for about a minute, and then I turned to the coffin and said, shut up, I'm talking. <laughs> and at that moment, I thought, what am I doing? Oh, no, that but was they laughed, beautiful. and it was all yes. right. But, oh, boy, those moments. I suppose memorials go. provide the greatest opportunity for the you know, defining anecdote about yeah. someone's life. Mitch yeah. Murray, Mitch Murray, Bob Monkhouse's funeral was at Amersham, and an enormous turnout of people. And the usual uh, courtesy, the family party going first. And Mitch didn't mean to. He got caught up in this family party going in. And the man came up with a list and said, it's, excuse me, are you on the list? And Mitch said, I certainly am. I'm one of the people being cremated this afternoon. <laughs> I love all this. Oh, it's very important. Yeah, there are not many comics who would expect only solemnity. At no, the no, there's nothing wrong yeah. with laughing at a funeral no. if your memory of the person is well, that, that was, that was yeah. your experience with Graham Chapman, wasn't it? Graham yes. Chapman's funeral. Yeah. And John Cleese. Yeah, that was astounding, wasn't it? Oh, astounding. Oh, marvellous. But I think there is a problem in Britain, and uh, often that people will say that if you laugh with something or about something, it means you also disrespect it. I remember no, no. Um, Tony Slattery used to do a, a perfectly brilliant impression of Douglas Bader walking, uh, <laughs> and it was very, very funny. And he did it on a, a, something we did on television, and I was invited because I think I'd co-produced it or something to go on one of those either Channel 4 programmes or it was a BBC Two programme, the one with Ludovic Kennedy. or yeah. One of those things where you have to answer to a member of the public who has a complaint. And this person said, do you know what Douglas Bader went through? I said, yes, because I read Reach for the Sky by Paul Brickhill four times when I was a schoolboy. I worship that man. Don't you understand? You can find someone's walk funny and think they were an extraordinary yeah. hero. The two don't cancel each other yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. You're not saying I devalue Douglas Bader by doing his walk. Well, that's like, it's like it's, Cle Cleese and Jones with Malcolm Muggeridge and exactly. the Bishop of... They just, yeah. Southwark. Yes. Southwark, it was Southwark. Merv Merv Mervyn, Stockwood, Mervyn yes. Stockwood, yeah. Yeah, that was extraordinary, wasn't it? Tim Rice was the presenter. <laughs> He got the poison chalice yeah. for that uh, show, didn't he? But it was uh, it's still worth looking at that uh, because it was a defining moment in some ways about comedy and uh, trying to understand uh, irony. My friend Chris, Christopher Hitchens, a great a great man, I think, he, he always said that in a way the best division you can ever make in the world is between literalists and ironists. And there are literalists who don't understand fiction and irony and characterization yeah. and, and just don't understand metaphor almost. And, that, you know, 
And comedy relies on people to understand <laughs> that you don't necessarily mean what you're saying. You're using it as a way of, of tickling it. You're tickling the sensitive parts of society. No comedian, unless they're absolutely pathological, is going to use the F and the C word if if they're entertaining a group of old ladies in a... In no, a, in exactly. A, you know, and similarly, you wear a suit for the occasion, wear a suit is, or even a dinner jacket if it's that kind of occasion. And your verbal language is the same. You you When you're with your friends, you say things you would never say yeah. to old ladies or old gentlemen. And, and it's about a kind of sensitivity that yeah. most decent people have. And to try and make it an extreme case of, oh, that's just wokery, or an extreme case of, oh, that's just bigotry, oh, no, is no. such a shame. That doesn't inform any discussion no, at all, it does it, on either no. side? And it doesn't recognise the reality of things. And the genius of comedy is it recognises the reality of things. People yeah. make grand statements and a comedian says, yes, yes, but can you get your trousers dry cleaned on a Sunday? You know, yeah. Because you're in the real world all the time. Because it has an involuntary reaction. Yeah, and the real world is, the th is the, what you test people's hypocrisy and stupidity against what you see us all doing when we're down in the, in the mud of life. Well, one of the things, and this is sort of tying in the US tradition and, and, and British tradition that I've never squared, which is roast culture. I, I'm not a fan of yeah, that. Yeah, and, and it, it works seemingly brilliantly in, in the States. Mm. And here's a country... Britain, who thrives on satire and, and sarcasm and irony mm. and all these things. And the roast seems to miss a beat when it comes over here, yeah. doesn't it? And no, I, I it sort of work. quite worked out It doesn't out work why. at all, yeah. no. I, and I've been to that place, the Friars Club in, in New York. I'm oh, sure yes. you've been there, yeah. where, where they tend to hold these things. And, um, and one of my closest friends is... Uh, Tita Khan, who's the widow of Sami Khan, the lyricist, oh, right. who used to write fabulously rude versions of lyrics for roasts for Sinatra's roast, because he, you know, he and many composers wrote some of the great songs for Sinatra. So they're all very. And you look at the lyrics, and they're they're brilliantly witty. The way he could make them very rude, but then you watch the actual roast itself and the speeches, and you just. Are horrified by it. It's just yeah. because it's without any irony. Yeah, or, that's or, the thing. It's just sheer insult. They, they tried it here. I did one where uh, it was Bruce Forsyth, oh, right. who I'd worked with a lot from mm. the windmill days and Generation Game and everything. And uh, the audience were just uneasy throughout. Yeah. When he did Strictly Come Dancing, they said in the warm-up he was brilliant with working off the audience and all that, but... He had to read autocue at certain moments in Strictly. And I said to him uh, on the show, I said, watching your face when you were reading autocue, I hadn't seen anything like that since I hypnotised our cat. And, <laughs> and the audience would go, oh, that's rude. You know what yeah. I mean? It, yeah. And so it doesn't you... work here, the no. roast. No. I was roasted, thanks to you, wasn't I? Yeah. And it was that, that same thing of, well, here's cuddly Barry Cryer that everyone mm. loves and he's an uncle, you know, to, to all these uh, comedians no, who come on. was better on that. Arthur yeah. Smith didn't struggle to insult no, you, yeah. but but that's part of Arthur's weaponry. Yeah. So it was sort of expected. Stephen K. Amos came on and bless him, he sort of got halfway through and said, I can't say this stuff to your face. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't seem right. And the audience agreed. And I think we all agreed. We said it's, it, what I took from that is something you've always said about working lines out before you go in front of an audience said if the musicians if you've got a band yeah. laugh or if the camera crew are laughing I won't put that in front of an audience because there's a complicity <laughs> yes. to that sort of laughter which is very different to the, right. the kind of laughter you get from an audience yeah. talking about rewriting lyrics at the Friars Club you used to write rewrite uh, Noel Coward lyrics and it takes us back to cabaret and it takes us back to the beginning shameless shameless I'd never have got away with of, yeah. never have got away with it in the theatre across the Lord Chamberlain but at Daniel Rue's club I would shamelessly take a song from a, a hit show and just uh, rip off the tune and write a new lyric and uh, Lionel Bart had a show called Blitz and there was a song Who's This Geezer Hitler and I had wittily written for Ronnie Corbett and Daniel Rue them as uh, Caesar and Cleopatra <laughs> and wrote this song, Who's This Geezer Caesar? Nice, nice. And one night they said, Lionel Bart's in. I went, oh, God. But he saw me. Hello, Bell. He said, Who's This Geezer Caesar? 
better than mine. Isn't that lovely? Just that comes is to so the sweet. So anyway, we did a Noel Coward finale arranged by a guy called Bill Solly. It was brilliant. But the great man sat there at a front table smoking his Marlboro, and you're doing a Noel Coward finale. It was nerve-wracking. Oh anyway, he came in the very crowded dressing room. We were all crammed into the same dressing room. And uh, he sat on the table with his legs dangling. He stayed quite a while. And he said, the finale, who did the finale? And we said, uh, Bill Sully, brilliant, brilliant. And he chatted away, it's lovely. And I thought, oh, I haven't said anything. Because at the beginning of the show, I'd ripped him off. He did a show called Ace of Clubs yes. with a song, we're two juvenile delinquents, juvenile delinquents, da 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 And I ripped it off. Tony Palmer and Danny LaRue sang, we're two most successful call girls, we're the toast of all <laughs> girls who were on the game. Subtle stuff. <laughs> so I thought, oh, dear, dear, oh, dear. hope he doesn't mention it. Who did the uh, song at the beginning? I said, sorry, that, that was me. And he patted me on the head. He said, nearly as good as mine. Oh, they used to come and enjoy it. It was marvellous at the club. You'd be taking the, you know how to do Ronnie Corbett and Danny played Margot Fontaine and Nureyev. <laughs> One night, Margot Fontaine came in. I thought, oh, my God, I'm hiding in the dressing room. She laughed all the way through. That's amazing. And as a result... She booked the club on private night, which she didn't usually do. She and Nureyev, her husband in a wheelchair, had been shot. Oh, yes, in the, the Panamanian. The Australian uh, Ballet yeah. Company. And Doug Fisher we, we had in the show, who Danny had spotted at Oxford, not Cambridge, actually. Mm -hmm. Doug spoke Russian. So I said to Doug, you introduce it on Tuesday night. So he went on and did pure filth in Russian. Nureyev pissing himself laughing. They were laughing at Nureyev laughing. Then Ronnie Corbett came on. They were laughing at Ronnie Corbett. But the man next to Nureyev was going, translating what Ronnie Corbett was saying. <laughs> I was getting three laughs for every show. <laughs> that was a wonderful night, but I never forgot that woman laughing. Yeah. Sometimes they don't like it. There is a story of uh, Peter Cook. If you remember in Beyond the Fringe, there was a, a sketch called Supermac in which... Peter oh, yes. imitated Macmillan, the Prime Minister, which sounds like nothing now, but was very, very rare and racy in those days. And so they, they were performing in, here in London at the Fortune Theatre, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, uh, someone noticed that Harold Macmillan was in the front row, or the second row, you know, close in uh, there. And they said to Peter, what, you know, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'll do, this, do the monologue as I do. And it was, you know, he did this very sort of uh, Harold McMillan voice and uh, there's some good jokes in it about, I, I, I see Britain's role in the new age as that of an honest broker. Uh, let's face it, no nation is more honest and certainly no nation is broker. And, uh, you know, a few good jokes like that. And then he says, I, I have a marvellous relationship with a young, sappy, vibrant uh, president, Mr. Mr. Kennedy. And if I have it, and this is where people... Peter went off script. And if I have some spare time of an evening, I like to toddle along to the theatre where there are vibrant and amusing, irreverent young comedians making fun of me. And I sit and look up at them with a frozen smile all over my silly old face. Yeah, <laughs> and then right. the, end, the <laughs> smile disappeared and there was a chill in the theatre and Alan Bennett said he's gotten too far this time. <laughs> oh, it's great. Wow. Do you, do you have a coward's memory or a story that... Oh, well, uh, I, I'm a vice president, yes. as it happens, of the Noel Coward Society. So, you know, I know a lot of stories. Some of them are thoroughly indecent, of course. I, I'll tell you just for your own amusement. When, uh, <laughs> when uh, It was such an unlikely figure as well for him to hit on. Uh, it was the young Kenneth Moore, the actor, was, was introduced to him. And uh, at, at some point, Noel just sort of took him aside. Tell me, um, Kenneth, isn't it? And he said, yeah, yes, yes, Mr. Coward. said, tell me, Kenneth, do you take it up the arse? And Kenneth Moore said, well, uh, as a matter of fact, no, I don't. Oh, very well. We needn't quarrel about it. But, you know, he, <laughs> those are very sweet ones. I like it when he was um, 
stepping off the plane in uh, in uh, Kansas City and the journalist from the Kansas City Star sort of came up to him with a notebook or a microphone and said, do, do you have anything to say to the star, Mr. Coward? And he said, twinkle. <laughs> <laughs> Just very nice and simple. But he, I mean, he was an extraordinary man. He had a... He had a genius for friendship as well. I mean, he, he you know, his his piano and his shelves were covered in silver-framed photographs of, yeah. of of people he worked with, whom he adored, and his his whole family was the theatre. It was what he loved more than anything in the world. Yeah, and if you took him out of that, he he was nothing, and he was he could be quite miserable. I remember Michael Attenborough of the Attenborough family was a godson of, of Noel Coward's, and when it was Coward's seventieth birthday. It's always very easy to remember when his birthdays were because he was like the Queen Mother born in 1900. So it was in 1970 at the Savoy Theatre. Uh, there was this show for him. And I think it's when he got his knighthood as well, possibly, and things like, or maybe he'd had that earlier. And um, Michael was very nervous of him. I and mean, he got a five pound note in his birthday card every year, um, but he didn't really know him, but he, he was... He called him Uncle Noel, and and so he sort of tapped him on the shoulder because he was sitting behind him, and Coward looked round rather crossly, and um, Michael said, "It's it's it's Michael." Um, oh, of course. Hello. He said, "How are you, Uncle Noel?" And he looked at him for what seemed to be twenty seconds and said, "Dying." That was it. Oh. <laughs> so, so he could be quite. I mean, what do you say to that? No, it's, it's, yeah. it's not a generous to, thing to say. No, it wasn't no. just the finale. He used to come to Danny's Club several times, and we heard one night he was cornered by a guy in the club who'd had a few who said to Noel Cub, I passed your house last night. And he said, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And they said, uh, story, they were having a tea break or something, rehearsal of his play, and uh, one of the actors was giving his nose a very enthusiastic pick. And Noel said, give me a wave when you get to the bridge. <laughs> Gorgeous. And, you know, you know. <laughs> and Michael Redgrave, the, the, she, the sea shall not have them. Oh, no. The, the poster. Yeah. Of the, he was walking past the poster of The Sea oh, Shall yes, Not Have Them and Michael Redgrave is in it. And I can't remember who else, but Noel Coward said, I don't see why not, everyone else, else has. has. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, and there's a curse on doing uh, Gone With The Wind as a musical. And it was done in the 70s. And it was done subsequently. It never seems to work. And it was very elaborate. It had a revolving stage and flood and lighting <laughs> and... God knows what, a horse on the stage. The Bonnie, burning of Atlanta, presumably. Yes, that's right. And Bonnie Langford was the girl and everything. And Noel went with some friends the opening night, and it, it was reported a lot. It was a disaster. Revolving stage stuck, the horse obliged all over the stage, the lighting <laughs> went off and everything. And they're walking out, and somebody said, what did you think, Noel? I think the two main problems could have been solved by sticking the little girl up the horse's arse. <laughs> Ow! <laughs> and to her credit, to this day, she tells that story. Oh, she told yeah. it on the one show. Very sporting. Bonnie aren't Langford, yeah. Just like Dolly Parton's got the yeah. gift of getting your defence in early. But yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've come to the end of our time together, oh, I'm sad well. to say. And um, as I struggled for labels at the, the top of the show, uh, I want to end with um, a rather charming one, which you may recognise, um, which is a man who is described as autocratic, angry and self-willed. He was also magnanimous, extravagant, generous, elegant, brilliant, and fun. And my favourite bit, he was probably the most variously gifted Englishman of any age. Wow, that's a great description. If I told you that was said by John Arlott, that was C.B. C.B. Fry, C.B. Fry. C.B. Fry, my, my all-too-distant kinsman, yes. who was one of the most extraordinary natural athletes uh, that this country ever produced. That There is a, a well-attested story, which sounds quite incredible, but he could stand in front of a fireplace and jump backwards onto the mantelpiece <laughs> and keep his balance there. He had the, the world long jump record for 17 years. Uh, as well as captaining England and playing in an FA Cup final, um, he kept in England for, in the golden age of cricket. He was extraordinary. And they say he was offered the throne of Albania 
Um, his, you know, it's a strange idea. He, 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 he wrote his autobiography, A Life Worth Living, which is an extraordinary list of his achievements. Apart from anything else, he came out first in the Oxford class list as well. He had the, high, the better degree than F.E. Smith, who became yeah, Lord Chancellor yeah. and others. But he, his great friend was Prince Ranjit Singhji, who was a, 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 the cricketer who invented the leg glide famously and was a, was a Prince of India and played for England uh, because that was how weird cricket was in those days. <laughs> and through his princedom at some point, he was a member of the League of Nations. He was a senior figure in the League of Nations, the forerunner of the United Nations. And when King Zog fled Albania uh, in the 1930s, or maybe actually probably the late 20s, there was a vacancy at the throne. And Prince Ranjit Singhji said, I don't know of anybody who could fill that vacancy better than my friend C.B. Fry. Because all those descriptions that John Arlen yeah, gave of yeah, him that's right. actually suit you perfectly for that kind of But and, and Norman Wisdom wasn't ready yet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but wouldn't that have been marvellous? Yeah. Known affectionately as CBCB. <laughs> 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 the whole channel for children named after him. But that genius for friendship or the gift mm. that you talk about is the common thread. And that's uh, what a lovely thought to end on. Thank uh, you. To nurture that uh, is to, you know, to tell great stories and remember people with fondness. Same time tomorrow. Beautifully wrapped up, <laughs> beautifully done. I've enjoyed myself so much. I always enjoy myself and talking to the great Barry Cryer. Thank you so very much. I know he hates being complimented. <laughs> yeah. Don't, Don't blow smoke up my ass. <laughs> Don't praise me, I become unbearable. <laughs> well, that's it from me, Dad and Stephen Fry. And if you enjoyed this, then do please leave us a review and subscribe. It really does make a difference to us. We'll be back in the pub on New Year's Eve with Danny Baker. Now, I'm going to confess, I'm just a little bit worried that Danny and Dad might not have much to say to each other. So until then, I'm Bob Cryer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.